There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We're going to be covering so many verses today. I'm not going to have you guys stand. We'll just cover them as we go. I do ask you to pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for just another chance that we can gather and hear your word. That you are, you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And you've left us, you've left us your word, Lord, that we can know how to live our lives in a way that's not only pleasing to you, but the, the best way to live for us. I just pray, Lord, that you would take, take your word today. And do that work, Lord, that only only your word can do. And let's let it germinate in our hearts. Let it make a change in us. That we'll be different people from when we walked in this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I read the following quote this week. Thousands of years ago, cats were worshipped as gods. Cats have never forgotten this. Let me begin by saying that I am not an animal person. Other than the fact that I do like to eat some varieties of them. <laughs> Personally, I prefer cats over dogs as I've never had to spray a cat with mace on my mail route. <laughs> Plus, they like to nap, which is something very close to my heart. But if there is an animal that is either loved or hated, it would be the common house cat. On one end of the spectrum, you have the crazy cat lady who lives with 38 cats. And on the other extreme, you have the Christian comedian who said, if he would have been Noah, instead of sending out a bird to see if there was dry land, he would have thrown a cat overboard. (laughs) Regardless of your feelings about them, they are useful in some ways. You're wondering, what could that possibly have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 20? Well... Around the 1960s, scientists started a series of researches on understanding how the brain processes visual inputs from the eye. And cats, which have a relatively sharp vision, were the major subjects. Now, for this work, scientists divided a pack of kittens into two groups, the horizontal group and the vertical group. As you can probably guess, the vertical group was raised in a world consisting entirely of vertical lions. The wallpaper inside their cages were black and white stripes running from floor to the ceiling, and the people handling or feeding them were either solid colors or vertical stripes as well. Meanwhile, the other cats were raised in cages and handled with people wearing exclusively horizontal stripes, and this group never saw any vertical lines. They were then put into a room full of chairs. 
the results were startling. Cats raised in one environment were literally blind to any lines running the opposite direction. Cats raised in a horizontal world, for instance, could see the seats of the chairs and would jump up on in them to nap, but they couldn't see the chair legs at all and would continually bump into them. Now, the vertical world cats had the opposite problem. They weaved around the chair legs like champs, but they could never see the horizontal seat of the chair. I think some Christians have the same type of problem. It seems some of them only see life in the vertical realm. Everything is spiritual in nature, and heaven is all that they think about. But they are blinded to the daily struggles of those around them. Usually usually they say things like, just let go and let God, or just have faith. But they never offer any type of practical help. Now, the other extreme are those who only see life in the horizontal dimension. These people live in a constant state of worry and anxiety about the events and the circumstances that surround them. If you spend enough time around these people, eventually you can start wondering if anyone is going to make it through. But there is a third group that is balanced concerning both both viewpoints. These are the people who, although they are spiritually minded, they also have their feet planted firmly on the earth. This is the group that we should strive to be part of. And I think Jonathan and David provide us excellent examples of this third group. They pray and leave room for God, hoping for a peaceful result. But if that doesn't seem possible, they make contingency plans to allow for escape. Look at verse 25 with me. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he's unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why is the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission to go, of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. We cannot help wondering at the fact that it did not seem to occur to Saul that perhaps the three recent attempts by the king to murder David might have played a role in David's absence from the king's table that day. We should recognize that Saul's assumption indicates something of the power he at least thought he had over his subjects. We also detect something of Saul's difficulty toward David in his avoidance of using David's name. Throughout this conversation and beyond, we'll hear Saul refer to David only as the son of Jesse. Unlike his son Jonathan, Saul did not recognize the importance of who David was. He spoke of him as someone who was not a name yet in his own right. And perhaps by not using David's name, Saul was dehumanizing him to make it easier on his conscience to eventually, hopefully, kill him. Now this, of course, is nothing new. This is why abortionists call a baby a fetus and why Nazi Germany tattooed Jews with numbers on their arms. It's easier to kill someone if you can convince yourself they're just a blob of flesh or simply a number. So the time has come for Jonathan to test the hypotheses he and David has came up with to see if Saul was really intent 
on killing David. I have to wonder if Jonathan stood in front of the mirror and practiced this lie because it seems pretty rehearsed. But it seems that he gets just a little bit carried away with the performance because Jonathan now embellishes upon the words just a little. Perhaps Jonathan, trying to make the excuse look as good as possible, adds in David's brother. It was David's obligation to his family, Jonathan said, that has kept him away from the table. He was only obeying his brother's command. But if you look back to verse 6, you'll see that David never mentioned anything about his brother. Now here's the thing about lying. If you're going to be a good liar, you have to have a photographic memory. Life is so much easier if we are always just truthful. That way I don't have to try to remember all the different lies I've told and trying to keep them straight in my head. I'm at the age now where it's hard enough remembering all the true things that I've said. I can't afford to add in another component. Anyway, that's free advice, no extra charge. But there was one other slip that Jonathan made when he chose to embellish the story as had been given him by David. When he used the words there, let me go, he may have inadvertently given the game away. The words he used literally means, let me escape. It's the same word that was used by the narrator repeatedly in the previous chapter that describes David's alluding of Saul's attempt on his life when Saul would throw his spear at David. Well, things are about to get awkward around the dinner table tonight. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan receives the full blast of Saul's fury. The abuse was extreme, verging on the obscene. Saul calls Jonathan the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You don't even know, want to know what that is in the Hebrew. Now, the literal truth was, of course, that Jonathan was the son of a perverse and rebellious man. But Saul was unlikely to express his insult in those terms. Now, I have my doubts that Saul's wife was sitting at the table for this. I mean, no man in his right mind is going to let his wife hear those words. Of course, Saul isn't in his right mind, so maybe she was sitting there, giving him one of those looks that you wives give us husbands when we are in a whole lot of trouble. It's like that man is with his wife in the mall when a gorgeous blonde walked past and got his extended attention. Finally, when he came to his senses, he turned and looked at his wife, and all his wife was said was, I hope that was worth it. <laughs> now, I don't know if Saul's wife was there or not, but if she was, if I were Saul, I'd feed some of my oatmeal to the dog before I ate it. Now, the king's tirade seems to disparage his own wife, but rightly understood, his words describe his son as being the lowest of the low. According to Saul, Jonathan's treachery in befriending David indicated that he was not a son of Saul at all, but the son of some other man. For surely no son of Saul would never betray his father. The king was in essence shouting, You are no son of mine. You must be illegitimate. Saul tells Jonathan, as long as David lives, your kingdom is going to be in jeopardy. 
Now let's just for a moment give Saul the benefit of the doubt here. Perhaps he wants Jonathan to have a chance to enjoy being king and to have his own kingdom. After all, any parent wants their children to succeed and have every opportunity that this world affords. But murder? Could that possibly be a realistic scenario? Well, I know of at least one other instance where a parent was reported to mur- resorted to a murder plot to help their child get ahead in life. In 1991, a Texas mother was sentenced to prison for attempting to hire a hitman to kill another woman. The other woman was the mother of a classmate of the convicted lady's daughter. The daughter of the victim was vying for a spot on the same cheerleading squad that the would-be murderer's daughter was trying out for. So to eliminate her daughter's competition, she was going to kill the girl's mother. And that's pretty sad, isn't it? And this was just for a spot on a cheerleading team. There was no kingdom involved here. So it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that Saul would kill to ensure the kingdom would go to his son, Jonathan. Look at verse 32. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Jonathan simply can't believe he is hearing these words come out of his father's mouth. So he pleads one last time. Why? What has David done? Why should he be killed? Saul's answer? He says, pass the mashed potatoes, and then he throws a spear at his own son. Your Bible may not say that thing about the mashed potatoes. But you thought your house was dysfunctional. This is turning out to be quite the dinner, isn't it? But I want us to notice that when Saul didn't have an answer to Jonathan's question, he just threw a spear. I found that to be a common response of many people. I listen to a lot of Christian and atheist debates as I walk my mail route, and I've lost count of the number of times the atheists would not be able to answer a well-thought-out question. And so they would just say something to the effect of either science has disproven the need of God or that all Christians are simply intellectually dim-witted. Of course, some of the people they say this to are people like John Lennox, who's a brilliant math professor at Oxford who can fluently speak four different languages. The point is, oftentimes, when people don't have an answer, they will just chuck a spear in your direction. Now, with an astonishing understatement, the writer then informs us, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. If I weren't so spiritual at this point, I would say, well, duh. It's almost comical how it sounds to our ears this morning. We all know that Jonathan has been defending his father to David, as he was certain that Saul could not be the man that David thought that Saul was. But then his own father throws a spear at his very own son. But here's the point I want us to get. Get it? Here's the point. Point of a spear. In the words of that eminent theologian, Rodney Dangerfield, tough crowd. But seriously, I'm sure Saul never thought there would come a day when he would ever throw a spear at his son. But that, my friends, is the insidious nature of sin. 
Jesus told us to love our enemies because if I don't love my enemies like Saul, I'll find myself hurting the innocent people that I do love. You see, we think we can confine, confine hatred towards this person or control it toward that group. What we don't realize, however, is that hatred or judgment will ultimately spill over into the lives of everyone around us. And before long, you're snapping at your spouse, yelling at your children, making fun of your pastor, and not laughing at his jokes. Why? Because likes all, that is what is really inside a person. Now, we think we feel hostility or anger because we have been wronged in some way. In reality, however, the irritation, the frustration doesn't produce the hostility, the anger, or anything. Instead, it simply reveals what was already inside us to start with. For example, you see a sponge in your kitchen sink. You can see it's wet, but you don't know what is inside it. It could be apple juice. It could be milk. It could be water. The only way you'll know what's inside it is to squeeze it then what's already in it will then flow out. Your squeeze won't put the liquid in it. It will simply reveal what was already there. So when you're squeezed and when I'm bumped, when we feel under the gun or under pressure, the way that we respond will reveal what's already been germinating inside our souls. Now, Jonathan would be like, I'm all for believing the best about people, but I just went from eating shish kebab to almost becoming one. It could be that David may be right about dear old dad. You see now what has happened in our story. Jonathan has went from defending David to now identifying with David and his suffering. The significant thing for us to see is that Saul now identified also Jonathan with David. Three times that same spear has been hurled by that same hand at David. And now Jonathan by his allegiance to the future king, has become the target of that spear. Now, does that sound familiar? Is there another group of people on this earth who suffers because of their allegiance to a future king? Allow me to read you a few passages and see if that helps. Romans 8:17. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And finally, 2 Timothy 2.3 Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In many ways, in the story that 1 Samuel tells, Jonathan is a model of a disciple of the future king. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And we can well imagine David saying to Jonathan, If Saul hates you, know that he hated me before he hated you. And as the spear whistled past Jonathan's ear, it would have made sense to him to hear the words of the later Christ, If they persecuted me they will persecute you also. You kind of get the idea that if we're going to be in the group that says Jesus is Lord, along with that comes some varying degrees of suffering that will enter into our lives. 
Now, that doesn't seem like a very pleasant proposition, does it? But please consider the alternative. The Bible says we are either for God or we are against Him. There is no middle ground in the spiritual life. So we can either be identified by those who sit at Saul's table and throw spears, or we can be identified with those who are willing to suffer persecution for the coming king. But be very sure of one thing this morning. You must choose. And if you choose not to decide, you still have made your choice. Because the default position of the human condition is to be the enemy of God if we refuse to accept his son. Verse 34. So Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. It says Jonathan ate no food that day because he was so grieved. I would like to spend just a moment talking about the importance of fasting as a Christian discipline. If there was one discipline not associated with Calvary Chapel, it would have to be the discipline of fasting. And yet, did you know that fasting is an expected part of the Christian life? Listen to what Jesus had to say about it. Matthew 6, 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do you notice Jesus did not say if you fast, but when you fast? As far as he was concerned, it was a natural part of someone's spiritual life. Now, time prevents me from going to in this in depth, but if you have no medical conditions that would prevent it, I would encourage you to incorporate fasting into your life in some way. Whether it's one day a week, one day a month, or even a longer extended time. If you'd like to know more about it, see me later, and we'll get you set up so you can be skinny like me. Verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. What a fateful moment in this story. Just a matter of a few yards is going to decide David's future. Either he would go back to Saul's house to the comfort of Jonathan's friendship and the surroundings that were familiar to him, or he would have to go into exile as one cast upon the mercy of God with not a friend in the world to turn to. Picture David this morning standing by that stone at Ezel waiting. From a distance he sees his dear friend coming out, the man that he loved with all of his heart. And Jonathan, as if he was at target practice, takes an arrow and shoots it. David must have tensely watched the flight of that arrow and then watched it arch over him and then land beyond him. I wonder what his feelings were at that moment. What was that message of that arrow to his heart? 
he knew he knew he meant that the Lord was sending him away. It wasn't mere chance that the arrow fell where it did. In fact, it had come from the very hand of God. It was a symbol of the will of God. And behind it was a loving purpose of God for his distraught child. And I wonder this morning, has the pressure of some trial thrown you into despair, causing you to doubt God's promises? The fact that you are the Lord's and he is yours seems to be almost irrelevant to the situation that you're facing. But he has brought you to this place just to teach you what it is like to take your stand at Calvary and not your stone of destiny, like David, to wait. To be still and know that he is God. In fact, that's all you can do. The decision is now out of your control. You can only wait for him to guide you. And I'll be honest with you this morning. The arrow of God on the target may leave a scar on your heart. In years to come, you may look back upon this time and your eyes will fill with tears as you remember the moment when the arrow went beyond you. But you will also look back and realize the Bible is always faithful and true when it says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. A couple of quick comments on the last three verses, then we can go home. Personally, I'm in no hurry as the Vikings don't play today. Yes, I'm a Minnesota Viking fan. Please pray for me. It's not like I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bill. I'm a Viking fan. Hi, Bill. That has nothing to do with the Bible. On to verse 40. <laughs> then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. So we see that Jonathan sends the young boy back into the city, which got rid of the boy, but it also left Jonathan completely defenseless. Remember that Jonathan had just been told in no uncertain terms by his father that David was the family's number one enemy. And Jonathan was about to approach him with no weapons. Now, on the one hand, this signaled to David that Jonathan had no kind of hostile intentions, despite his father. And on the other hand, it also expressed his confidence to David by approaching him this way. Now, David comes from behind the bushes and bows down before Jonathan, and then they kiss and weep together. Now, this will not be their last meeting, as they will have one short meeting in chapter 23, but it was certainly an emotionally profound farewell. They both wept, the Bible says, but David, he wept the most. Think about it. He didn't know how many years of exile laid before him, and perhaps he may never see his beloved friend again. Now, Eastern people aren't afraid to weep and embrace and kiss one another when they meet and when they part. Now, the kiss, of course, must be understood in its context. In the Old Testament, a kiss was a symbol of friendship, but also it was a symbol of veneration. For example, Samuel had kissed Saul when he anointed him to become the king. There was nothing romantic here whatsoever. This is similar to the way that Italians and Greeks still kiss one another today on the cheek, or it's what the New Testament calls a holy kiss. Now, speaking for myself... I thank God 
I'm in a culture where the men just shake hands. Now, the beautiful thing here is these two men were willing to enter in to each other's sufferings. I read something interesting this week. The university researching pain recruited volunteers to test how long they could keep their feet in buckets of ice water. And they observed that when a companion was allowed into the room, the volunteer could endure the cold twice as long as those who suffered alone. They concluded the presence of another caring person doubles the amount of pain that a person can endure. I know I stress this a lot, but we need one another in this church. None of us will do very well isolated from the flock. There is a reason why the wolf always goes for the separated sheep. I'd like to close with what we will call the two lessons of the arrows. There are some lessons of the arrows that we have to consider in this story of David's life. One, the arrows are controlled by someone other than you. Now, this is the moment when we learn how to lose self-control. You finally learn that you have to give up your plans, your idea, and your desires, and let someone else, namely God, take control. And secondly, the arrows are often in somebody else's hands. We must do everything that was within our power to serve the Lord, but there will be people that God graces our lives with that have greater, and I might add, God-given control that we often may not ever understand. Bottom line, we can trust God to guide our lives, regardless of the way in which he chooses to do it. In the words of that great hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And, Father, that is our prayer this morning. We want you to guide us. We want to walk in your Holy Spirit day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment. And, Lord, we pray that you would just whisper into our ear. Whenever we would veer off to the right or the left, we would hear that voice saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Do that for us, O Lord. Ask in your name. Amen.